Hello everyone and welcome back to Mind Your Body. Before I get into today's episode, I want to take a moment and acknowledge that this podcast now has an average of 500 listens per week. That is so inspiring and it warms my heart to know that so many of you are out there inspired by this work and interested in exploring your own mind and body connection or exploring the work that you already do in this field. So thank you so much. Also last week I offered a free course and that filled up way past capacity. So again, I am just really pleased that there are so many of you just eager to learn about this subject and you all inspire me to keep creating this podcast and spread such important information. If you didn't get to sign up in time for the free course, make sure to visit my website at mindyourbodydmt.com and opt into the newsletter so that you can be one of the first people to hear about free offerings like this, including the next one I'm going to do, which is going to be another free giveaway. So be on the lookout and sign up if you want to know first. So today we are hearing from Kendra Karane, who is a dance movement therapist. She was actually on the podcast for episode number six with Laura Rafa talking about authentic movement. Her last name is obviously different now. And today she came on to talk about her work on the forensic unit at Bellevue Hospital. The conversation we have about mental illness is so important and we really emphasize the humanness in each of her patients and anyone and everyone who struggles with mental illness. I especially love her call to action at the end, which I won't spoil, but you just got to hear it and spread the word. This is Mind Your Body, a dance movement therapy perspective on the integration of our emotional, cognitive, physical, and spiritual aspects of our being into one more aware and whole existence. My name is Kendra Kirane. I am a dance movement therapist, and I work at Bellevue Hospital on a forensic inpatient unit. Um, My patients are primarily residing on this acute inpatient forensic unit in a city hospital they're struggling with mental illness and they're facing criminal charges. They're often referred to the unit from the local jail for psychiatric stabilization or to determine if they're fit to stand trial. They're, they're all adult or adolescent male inmates in the custody of Department of Corrections. And some of them are well known to the forensic service. And I've worked with those folks off and on for several years. I've been on that unit off and on for 10 years. And others come in for the first time, perhaps after their first break, and I'm just getting to know them. So because they're temporarily living on this forensic inpatient unit, they're exposed to a bunch of stressors. There are a lot of rigid rules and boundaries. There's limited interaction and time frames that they're working with, and there's limited resources. So I come in and I offer an opportunity to explore where they're at and how they're feeling, mostly during dance movement therapy, but during other types of groups too. And I'm looking to provide a space for them to connect with others in a healthy and creative way 
so that they can discover resources within themselves. Yeah. You said you had a limited amount of time. How long are they usually there for? And is it always the Department of Corrections that refers them or where else are they coming from? They may come from the local jail, Rikers Island, or from NYPD, from the community, and come in for evaluation in that way. The time frame ranges. It's a short-term stay because it's an inpatient unit. It can range from a few days to a few months. It really depends on the circumstances of the individual and the type of treatment that they need. Mm -hmm. So it's always that they have committed some kind of crime, and that's why they're going on to your unit. Yeah, allegedly. They're, they're usually waiting arraignment or, or waiting on a determination from, from the court hearing. But yeah, sometimes they admit to a particular crime. Other times it's not clear what really happened. But they are there because they are facing a charge and because they're struggling with some sort of mental illness. Mm-hmm. And who has decided that they're struggling with a mental illness? Like, why would they come to the forensic unit versus somewhere else? Well, if they're in jail and they're seemingly psychotic, if they're decompensating while they're there, um, for instance, if they if their thought process becomes disorganized or if they're easily agitated and they can't regulate their impulses, essentially if they're a danger to themselves or to others, then they they likely need psychiatric stabilization, so they're referred to us. And if they don't need to stay long, then they'll be referred referred back. Okay. To where they came from, yeah. So a lot of them are going between Rikers Island and the Friends of Unit, right? Okay. Exactly. And we're trying to re- reduce the recidivism. But yeah, while they're with, with us, then I'm providing group therapy to process what they're going through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I want to get into that, but it's probably connected. But before that, what are a lot of the the patients that you see, a lot of their histories and the life events and experiences that they've come with? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And it's it's hard to summarize it neatly because they're all unique. Our unit can house around 38 patients. And as you can imagine, each one has a unique story. So some might be capable of articulating that story and others might may not have the capacity to reflect on life events, whether it be because their memories are suppressed or because they're too disorganized to articulate it, or perhaps they just don't want to go there within the group setting if it's not safe enough to talk about it in front of others. Um, so their life events really range. Um, I think it is fair to say that Many have experienced traumas in their life prior to hospitalization, and the unit itself can be traumatizing too. Um, My approach is to often wait for the patient to spontaneously disclose their histories in the group. For example, when something comes up in a group that reminds them of their their past, and these, these memories are personal. Sometimes they're quite positive even. For instance, a patient had recently been in a dance therapy group and associated the dance with celebrating the holidays and um, Christmas and having a tree and dancing around the tree um, with members of his family when he was a child. And at other times, the memory can be more difficult. It can A song can remind them of a person who has abused them in their life. Or their memory can be you know, can trigger a, an ambivalent feeling of associating drug use and music and dance 
and not being clear about how they feel about that. And but starting to express that these their past life events that they've had. Mm-hmm. So um, their life experiences can range. And I realize I'm being a little bit vague and not giving you a whole lot of detail on what their life experiences are. But I also don't want to generalize or sensationalize their experiences. Um, in some ways, their life experiences are no different from you or I. It just happens that they have a mental illness and that illness may have led to the act of committing a crime. Yeah. So when you say mental illness, um, and I, I know you don't want to categorize or diagnose them in a general way, but what kind of diagnoses are you talking about? Right. It can really range. And some, some individuals are there because they're suffering from depression and suicidality. Um, some are there because they may have bipolar disorder. Um, they may have psychotic features. Um, a lot are diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder or schizophrenia. Um, it really ranges. We've got a complex group of individuals that are coming in. But any diagnosis that you can imagine might might come through. Okay. And it sounds like you don't particularly like to go read the charts and see what it says. You like to wait to see what comes up in your groups, specifically dance therapy. Not quite. I, I do have a responsibility to assess and, and write progress notes in a timely manner. And there are obligations to do that within the hospital. And it's not that I'm not aware of the information that's given in the chart. And there are initial interviews where these types of questions are asked to get a sense of what they believe they came in for. But regarding traumatic life experiences, I often wait to see what comes up organically in a group rather than pressing and directing to get information because I have an agenda, what I'm really more interested in in doing is providing a space where they can feel free to bring up what what's coming up for them when they're ready. And then when they're ready, I'm ready to explore that with them and, and get to their level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's talk about that. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, what are the most common themes that come up for your patients in your groups? Um, what are some struggles that commonly come up for them? And mm-hmm. how do they come up through the movement and the metaphor and imagery? Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you asked me about these themes, of course, my first thought is to say freedom, of course, they are not free, and they want to become free. And that comes up almost every day. Um, in lots of different shapes and forms and sounds. But ultimately, what I keep hearing from them is they want to be autonomous and, and out in the world living their life on their conditions. But other themes, of course, are um, life, what it means to be living and what it means to be doing time. Um, themes around boundaries and rules, particularly in response to the structure of the unit, which is very boundaried and rule setting. And, and they're not the ones determining how the, how it is structured. They, they really don't have a lot of choice. So choice is another, uh, another theme that comes up. Um, hope and safety. I'm always interested in seeing if there's some sort of hope and where they can find their own resources from within themselves in the group. And another theme is resistance. 
you know, whether it's, I don't want to go to the group mm-hmm. or I don't want to face my illness or I, I don't, I'm not ready to admit that I have a, an addiction is resistance can come up in lots of different ways. But, um, I, I was thinking about a, a couple of examples in group that I wanted to share with you. And mm-hmm. one example that, you know, I don't have specific movement examples to give you from this particular session, but I thought it highlighted the, the sense of bringing something out of nothing. And so you might remember in 2012, Hurricane Sandy hit and New York City was greatly impacted. And there was a storm surge and it caused flooding and it cut power. And ultimately, a bunch of hospitals had to evacuate. This was a huge ordeal, of course. And um, Bellevue was included in that. Um, And so after transferring all of the patients to other locations throughout the state, all of the hospital staff was deployed as well. So for a period of time, I was at Kirby Forensic. And it was like a pop-up shop. You know, we repurposed an empty floor and established one of the rooms as the group therapy room. And this room was pretty small, much smaller than what I was used to, and probably a lot smaller than what the patients were used to, too. And there were a few chairs in this room, and I think there was one window Um, but there were no outlets. And so I had no option to plug in a radio and use my old fashioned CDs and (laughs) play music. (laughs) So we had to, um, you know, we didn't have access to our regular resources because they'd been left behind at Bellevue. So, um, one day Denise, Danny and I, um, Denise is a dance therapist and Danny is a, a drama therapist. We, we were there together and we, decided that we would co-lead or triple lead a group. And so we we gathered up several patients into this tiny little room and discovered who was motivated for therapy that day. And we we started to meet the patients where they were at, which was in complete stillness and silence. And eventually we're standing kind of in a circle and eventually someone starts to sway. And so we mirrored that. And, you know, it's interesting thinking about this because you've got three therapists in the room. It's a lot of holding. And I want to say that there were only three or four patients, too. So it was pretty equal. Mm -hmm. Equality, actually, is another theme that comes up now that I say that. So here we are, we're swaying, and then I see a foot lift, and then we all start lifting a foot, and then we lift another foot as we're swaying from side to side. And then that you know, little lift becomes a step side to side. And now I can hear the weight Mm -hmm. in the space, right? And you can imagine it's now there's this rhythm and we're all stepping. And then somebody, I don't know how, but somebody decides to clap. And it creates this pattern. And we just build on that and we keep moving and we're moving with them and we're repeating this and creating this like mastery. And I, I think the whole room really felt a a connection and no words were spoken throughout this entire brief session, but there was embodiment and there was a reflection of what's going on around us. And there was eye contact and, 
life. And they made, we all made something out of nothing. And that, you know, that comes up today, even on the unit when I do have resources a little bit more, but there's this opportunity to explore like what that's like to create something from nothing. That's a theme. Yeah. And those are really precious things that came up too. the connection. And you said eye contact mm-hmm. so like that human to human connection and synchrony and being a part of something like really yeah, foundational. About, sorry to cut you off. I, I think about how devastating that was to evacuate the hospital mm. and to transfer literally thousands of patients, right? Tons of people had to be displaced patients and staff alike. And it was traumatic. I remember just there being this sense of, uh, lifelessness on the unit at that time, you know, as a collective. But in that group, it, it was something else. So, you know, I don't remember the any more specifics, but I remember the feeling. Yeah. You know, and I think that's going to stay with me for a long time. And I wonder if that'll stay with the patients too, because we do have some that come back to us and they remember, remember us from Kirby and, that meant something. Yeah, I can hear it and how you're telling the story, how meaningful that was. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's just reminding me that even in the worst of times and these times of lifelessness and disaster that you all still had each other, you all still had that human connection and that seems like a really important reminder no matter where they or you or anybody is in life. Mm-hmm. And I just that speaks to the power of doing therapy through movement and embodiment, like you're saying, because you may not have gotten that out in, you know, just a talk therapy group or just talking, sitting in that room of the nothingness. Yeah, I almost, I would imagine that had someone spoken in that moment, it would have kind of killed the vibe, you know, like there was so much that was already being said without saying any words at all. To, to speak would have taken it out of, the body out of the experience. Mm. Um, you know, the other kind of transitioning to another example, I was um, recalling a patient who had been very resistant to coming to groups. And um, after a long period of this patient being unready to participate, one day I was so moved by him because something had shifted in him. It was a small shift but it really impacted me and I I had to write it down because it felt so moving so um, I'd like to read it to you yeah for weeks and weeks we've had a particular patient isolative and distant always in bed not connecting with anyone each day multiple times a day I invite him to a group knowing his pattern and sometimes he responds by nodding his head ever so slightly. Most of the time, he doesn't respond at all. Today was no different. I knocked on his door, called out his name, and encouraged him to join movement therapy. And he rolled over with no verbal response, which I've come to res- to expect. I almost said respect, but I think that's a Freudian slip too. I did respect it. Um, and I closed his door upon leaving since that's how it was before I showed up. And I went to run the group a few minutes later, and I couldn't believe it. 
there he was at the door, making eye contact, willing to join. When I asked him what motivated him, he said very quietly, because you kept inviting me, I haven't been given up on. And today was a reminder to keep following our hearts and stay the course, even when it appears that on the surface, nothing is happening. It takes patience and perseverance to create change. Oh, wow, that's so powerful. Yeah, I think that a lot of these folks have been given up on by society, and some of them don't have anybody in their corner. Yeah. I think the fact that you keep showing up suggests that they're worth being seen. They're worth your time. Right. And maybe it's empowering for them to be able to reject something or to say no. Or maybe it's useful for them to practice saying no to things. Maybe that wasn't so easy in the past. Right. And that yeah. the, the repeated no, um, the rejection of your invitation is an expression or could be an expression of them saying, I'm not worth coming to your group. But by you coming back, you're saying the opposite. I want to remind them that they're valuable. Right. That I see them as valuable. Whether they feel that way or not, it's maybe a different story. And when they show up in group, I'll find out. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile, I'm valuing their existence. And this particular population has a huge stigma against it. So that's part of the work here. Yeah. That sounds like a theme of inclusion versus exclusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean... There's a lot of isolation on a forensic inpatient unit, probably on any psychiatric unit, but particularly here. And for them to come together and relate to each other is kind of unique. Yeah, I imagine in a different way than they ever have before. I mean... I've definitely heard some of them (laughs) reflect on their own awe that they are dancing and playing with other grown men in jail (laughs) or in a hospital, you know, probably not what they expected unless they've been there before. So, yeah, that's pretty amazing. I mean, it just, it makes me wonder what, how other people view it. Even the patients who never do join and, Mm -hmm. and see that. Yeah. And some of those patients may not join, but they're able to walk down the hall and, glance through the window and see that something is happening in there and it may take them time to warm up to the idea of being in the group maybe they'll never be interested but they have some exposure to what's happening from a distance if they want if they care to see it and another opportunity would be during community meetings which happen a couple of times a week and occasionally there are performances oh (laughs) Like, what kind of performances? Well, the idea is that the patients who have reached a higher level have an opportunity to share a talent, whether that be through poetry, spoken word, a dramatic play, or a dance performance, um, sharing their their thoughts on anything positive for the community. It, it can range, but um, I've had a couple of examples where based on the structure of the group, it has organically felt like a choreography. And in those circumstances, I've proposed, you know, would you be interested as a group 
in actually developing a choreography based on what you did in in a therapy session in dance therapy and then present it to the community so that they can see what kind of work you've been doing mm-hmm. and a couple of times they've done it yeah i'm curious about what that looks like and if there's a way that you can describe how that develops yeah I, the the couple of times that i can think of have started kind of in a structured manner where i invite them to um, introduce themselves with a movement, which is a, you know, a common dance therapy technique, right? So show us who you are in your movement. Maybe show us how you're feeling or show us your character, whatever they're prepared to share, right? And as they share their movement, some other patients may spontaneously mirror the movement. And when I see them do that, I might name, yes, if you have the impulse to mirror the movement, you can join in with Mr. A and do the, do his movement together, if that's okay with Mr. A. And usually Mr. A says, yeah, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Occasionally a patient won't want to be mirrored, but most of the time they do. And then it may go around the circle and everyone gets an opportunity to show who they are through a movement. And sometimes on this occasion, what happened was each person introduced himself with this movement. Everyone mirrored that. And then we linked the movements so that it went from Mr. A's movement to Mr. B's to Mr. C's and so on and so forth. And then we kept circling around until we could smooth out the transitions. Transitions might be another theme, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so in the rehearsal process, they are mastering their self, their movement, and they are getting a chance to really understand what it's like from another person's perspective really embodying their perspective. And in this case, we added music at some point, and it happened that it was Frank Sinatra's New York, New York. (laughs) And that stood the speed of their movement to how the the song sounded. And so it created this kind of different type of expression than it had without the music. And then in the end, at at the end of that song... You know, I think he yells out, New York, New York. And one of the patients puts his hands out like jazz hands and in this high V and gets down on one knee in this really exaggerated, hilarious movement. And then suddenly four other patients join him in, in this position down on the floor. And it looks like the ending to uh, dance choreography. And at that point, I said, you know, this really, this almost looks like a choreography. And I look at them and, and they're nodding in agreement. Yeah, that, that felt like a performance. So I said, what do you think about really rehearsing that and giving it its title and coming up with a program and even performer names, aliases, if you will, and really put on a show? And each one of them agreed. Yeah, they were interested in in showing their work to the community. And when I say community, I mean just the the unit. Right. Those who are working on the unit and the patients there, um, not the general community. But they did. They created a program. Oh, oh! Um, You're showing me the program now. (laughs) The Golden Age: A Time for Hope and Possibilities. Yeah, and that is a wow. title and subtitle that they came up with themselves. 
in other sessions that I held. Um, this particular group actually was in 2015, apparently. <laughs> um, and then they had a quote at the, in the, on the back, I'll show you, along with an image. Can you see it? We don't have all the answers, but it's still pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> That's so real. So real. You know, like there's no, no uh, romanticizing it. It's just like, yeah, we don't have the answers, but things are all right. <laughs> There was some sense of acceptance, like, yeah, it's okay right now. I'm making it work. And the feeling experience was just incredible, you know, seeing them commit to the work. And, you know, here they are committed on the unit. And then the parallel to that, being committed to the work and committed to um, really really doing this the way they, they wanted to. And... Yeah, and it led to an actual performance where they handed out tickets. Wow. <laughs> handed out these, pro- these programs. And they had a chance. They carved out time to speak about what the movement meant to them symbolically, what the imagery meant to them. And then they held a Q&A. And if that's not empowering, I don't know what is. Yeah, that's exactly the word that just came to me. Like, how empowering for them. And especially, like you were saying, in in a place, in the unit where they have such little control, where, you know, rules are made for them all the time. They had the opportunity to lead this self created, obviously with your help, but self created show and expression of who they are and their hope. Yeah, and they really did do all the work. I mean, I opened up the door and gave them a couple of ideas on how to structure, but everything from the the name, the colors on the program, the imagery, and obviously their own movements and how they wanted to organize that all came from them. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. If you're looking for more self-compassion, inner peace, and more self-awareness, I can help you gain a deeper understanding of yourself and awaken your creative spirit. I am now offering mind-body healing sessions through confidential video chat wherever you are in the world. If you're interested, visit mindyourbodydmt.com, click on contact from the top menu, and send me a message to let me know you're interested and we can have a free consultation. Again, that's mindyourbodydmt.com. I can't help but wonder... Like, what would people think if they saw this? You know, like, people who have a certain view of criminals and just picturing them choreographing and dancing and coming up with a program and performing, you know? Mm -hmm. I wonder how that would change certain stereotypes and judgments. Yeah, I I think that there are a variety of reactions to, to that how did the rest of the unit view it? I recall a couple of other patients really being inspired and wanting to perform as well. Um, and staff, of course, had some positive things to say. And I think that there was a general sense that they had really made a lot of effort and that was seen. And they talked about that for days afterwards. The patients themselves talked about it for days. Yeah, I realized I was talking about how other people viewed them, but I wonder actually how that changed or uh, impacted their view of themselves. Mm -hmm. 
Did they yeah, talk about actually, that? that? That I would love to see them again and, and, uh, debrief it in a way, you know, I'm curious if it's stuck with them today. I know for myself it has. So I, I could only imagine that it did for them too. They were the ones they were actually performing to get up on stage and perform could be a once in a lifetime opportunity. Yeah. So I, I'm not sure, but I, I can imagine that it, it could have stayed with them. <laughs> yeah. That's what you, that's what you want at least, right? That's what you hope for. <laughs> it's kind of like, yeah, I, I guess I hope that there's some uh, impact, you know, and I, I hesitate to give you that example for those who might be listening and not know a whole lot about dance therapy, because I, I don't want to confuse that and make it sound like dance therapy is, is simply a performance or a dance class. But this particular session, this movement performance truly came out of the work that they did in the therapy session itself. And it just organically led to that. So it has to be mentioned. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you what other... Um doesn't have to be necessarily examples, but what other kind of dance therapy techniques do you use that's that might be different from what you just described? Yeah, I mean, some groups can be very order-less and structure-less, chaotic and manic, some with music, some without. Some groups are withdrawn and no one's connecting. So my approach might be in the beginning to just meet with each individual patient in this space and and have moments of mirroring them and uh, making an effort to see them and get to their level. Other moments, it's so chaotic, it needs a lot of structure, and I might do my best to develop that in the in the room. Mm -hmm. If it's not safe, they can't stay. But we talk about the safety and what the ground rules might be on their terms and if there are any rules that they want to omit today. And if somebody does want to omit a rule, I might check in with the rest of the group and see how they feel about there not being any rules today. And mm -hmm. someone else in the room might challenge that and remind the other group member that, you know, the rules are kind of useful. So I will generally facilitate a dialogue between the group members to structure it themselves in a way to hold the, each other accountable, which tends to work. Knock mm -hmm. on wood. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, more than you just standing up there or whatever, just being this authority figure who tells them all these rules. And, mm -hmm. you know, while that's important to degree for them to hold each other accountable and hold themselves accountable and make up the rules on their own has a different kind of power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Giving them some sort of control might be what they need within a safe container. You know, I, I use a lot of imagery if they're capable of using symbolism. Some patients are not because they're not organized enough. But for those who are capable of using symbolic expression, we may imagine that we are flying around the room or diving into the sea and explore different sensations and what that means to them. And I'm interested in what motivates them and um, where they want to go in this moment in the group, but how that relates to where they want to go in their life, how they want to come to terms with their current experience, how they can live to the fullest within this environment. Sometimes that means 
regressing to this old child childhood place and suddenly I find that we're sitting on the ground and we're bopping around like maybe three-year-olds um, and exploring what it what the world is like down in that place and then bringing them back up to an upright position before the group terminates getting them back into their adult stance so that they can transition into the rest of the the space, the the unit, but we don't want to leave them in, in a regressed place. Right. And I feel like a lot of the, the short-term work is helping them embody different possibilities and perspectives. Like when you were talking about being on the floor, that they're still the same person in the same body, but they can change the position to have a different perspective and be in a different position and see things a different way. Yeah, and maybe for one individual, you know, childhood was rough. And so perhaps this being on the floor with the rest of us bopping around like children, maybe that's a corrective experience. Correct that that experience of, of not having a positive child experience. Perhaps, yeah. Perhaps. And they might talk about that in the group. Mm-hmm. And that might be explored at the end of the session verbally. And that's an example of how the trauma can come out spontaneously out of what you were referring to earlier. Right. So I'm not digging for it per se, but if it comes up organically through their movement and they want to speak about it, I'm interested in that. And I'm wondering how other people in the group can support them or relate. Mm -hmm. And that can be powerful to be able to share their story and to to get support from other people that they might not have in the past. Right. And also, you're giving them a way to put these experiences into words. So they may not have been able to access this memory from their childhood if they didn't literally put themselves back into that position. Maybe they wanted to talk about things from the past or their childhood or not consciously knowing that, but knowing, but having a sense that something has been holding them back. And then you help them get there and then that brings it out and they can express that in, in movement, of course, and in words. Right. And sometimes, as, as I was saying before, n- no words are necessary, that the movement was was sufficient. It said it all. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe it's just like a, a nod of acknowledgement or an understanding among the group members. So it just depends on the individual and the, and the group itself. Yeah. The way that you described that, the one patient, it sounded like he wanted to talk about that experience of having an unpleasant childhood. Yeah. Yeah. So whether, so you, you'll kind of meet them where they're at about that too. Like if they have this need to talk about it, this pressing need to verbalize, you give them the space for that. Yeah. If there is space, again, it depends on the group dynamic and what the group is ready to hear. So sometimes we have to provide a little extra structure or containing, but sometimes the group is ready to hear something like that and, and wants to support the other person. So, so I guess we didn't say specifically what the, the crimes that the patients are there for, but Mm -hmm. this question came up for me about uh, the human ability to harm other people or harm others. Um, I sometimes think, I think about the conflict of, you know, 
can I harm someone? Like, would I be able to kill somebody if I had to? And I guess I sort of, I don't want to be naive. So I feel that given the right circumstance, I, as a human being, could tap into that side of my animal self and I could kill someone under the right circumstances. And I sort of, you know, I'm assuming that anyone could. Um, This theme about good versus evil came up for me while I was thinking about your work and the kinds of things that you probably not witness on the unit, but maybe just hear about. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I can, I can appreciate that question because it does remind me that folks who don't work with this population may see, see these individuals as good or bad, good or evil. And there's a, there's a la- label, there's a stigma, right? Um, our, my patients have lots of different charges, you know, it ranges from jumping a turnstile to alleged murder um, and everything in between. So these are charges, mind you, that they're still waiting right. trial. Um, and, and I don't know what really happened. Um, my work on the unit comes with a lot of ambiguity and risk, of course, but it also stems from immense positive regard for my patients. Um, I witness these human beings strive toward reintegration of their self within and their self in society every single day. And it doesn't look easy. What do you mean by that? I can see their struggle. I can see their struggle and they tell me about their struggle. But I'm not a criminologist. I'm not a a judge. I'm on that unit in the role of a therapist. And I really want to honor what that role is for them. And I'm there to support them. Um, I'm not questioning if it's premeditated, whatever, mm-hmm. right? I'm, I'm interested in what what is their story according to them? And what can I do to support them? I'm interested in what creates health and what motivates them to connect with each other and what motivates them to connect with themselves, and is that safe enough? So I'm kind of looking at it from the opposite perspective, and and I wonder if if I looked at it the other way, if I'd even be able to work with this population at all, because I'm sure on some level it's a bit of a defense for me. I don't I don't want to think too much about that because the reality is some some of the crimes might be really hard to swallow. So I'm choosing to go in and and treat them like human beings should be treated, right? One is moralizing their behavior, it would become untenable to treat. So, you know, I I mentioned this to you earlier, maybe before we'd started recording, but there's an overarching challenge in our society to to break the stigma um, and create restorative healing environments. There's still a lot of misunderstanding about what mental illness is and some denial in the society. And the more we can learn about the signs and the symptoms and not judge people for those illnesses, the more we can, you know, get them the help that they need before something happens. Because I do think a lot of the patients that come in might not have allegedly um, committed those crimes had they been on medication. Do you think it's medication mostly that would prevent the alleged crimes? Or Yeah, I mean, I guess it's... Uh, nature and nurture, right? There's a combination. And I'm not a medical doctor, but I work with psychiatrists and it seems to be helpful for a lot of patients. And therapy is, is helpful 
And sometimes one person only needs one of those two. And sometimes that person needs both. It just depends on the individual. But the more we can learn about what the illness is and destigmatize it, I think the, the more resources that they'll have and the less odds of them ending up in jail. You know, I think as a society, we need to be less fearful of mental illness and begin to embrace what these folks are going through and help them to heal. Right. I also think there's a, you know, the question of the good versus evil. I feel like there's, there's so much stigma around that. Um, so I'm not working specifically with a forensic population, but working with populations from children all the way up to older adults. And this question always comes up of punishment, actually. Like even in little things on the unit, this person um, didn't go to school, so they shouldn't go to therapy. Or they didn't listen to this. So, you know, they don't deserve that extra snack, whatever the situation is. Or even in therapists, it comes up a lot. This is a big theme that comes up with with my group is how do we know that if we are meeting them where they're at, that we're not just giving them what they want and reinforcing bad behavior and, you know, not in those words, but something along those lines. So... I just feel like there's a big projection from the way a lot of us in the world grew up with, you know, positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, punishment. And I just imagine that especially the population that you work with, there's that conflict of, well, they should be punished or maybe they don't deserve a second chance. And a lot, and I, I'm guessing that a lot of that has been projected onto them for a long, long time. Absolutely. Yeah. The the punishment is the time, right? The yeah. punishment is the time. But there is the perception that while they're doing time, and I'm totally generalizing with society, I'm not speaking of anyone in specific, but there is this perception that while doing time, you should also not be comfortable. Right. And I just don't agree with that. I don't agree it's with that at point. all. That while you're doing your time, which is your punishment, which is not my, my job is not to punish. That's not my role, but I am in the role of therapist and I'm interested in how you can rehabilitate or if you can't get back to a healthy place, then how can we find a healthy place for you to get to for the first time? Yeah. You might not want to answer this, but (laughs) does that serve an issue for you as your role as a dance therapist? Um, And I ask that because it can be the creative arts therapies in general can be misperceived as fun therapy, right? It's the fun. Yeah. Yeah. And what's wrong with enjoying your therapy process? What's wrong with giving someone what they want if what they want is healthy? And why don't they deserve that? Why don't they deserve a second chance? Right. So we're talking about different philosophies. I know I can't speak for those people. I know that that exists, but from my perspective, they do deserve to be treated humanely. And if I can help them to discover something healthy in themselves, then I will keep showing up and doing the work. Right. I think that takes a lot of empathy and a lot of being able to separate your own past, not you specifically, but anyone's own past from the present. And I'm not just talking about the population you're working with, but with 
anybody who is perceived in a a way that they should be punished or that they are a bad person or, you know, these big, big judgments. I think that takes a lot of putting aside your own stuff and empathizing and wondering if, if something happened to me where I had to do something that was really horrible or I went through something really terrible and I impulsively reacted and this is kind of where I'm at and I made a mistake or I did something that mm-hmm. wasn't seen favorably. Wouldn't I want a second chance or wouldn't I deserve to be happy again? Or wouldn't I deserve for other people to treat me humanely, treat me as a human? And good people can do bad things. Bad people can do good things. Right. I'm Again, I'm not seeing my patients as good or bad. But as complex individuals with a lot of stuff going on inside and that probably need some help. And there's goodness and badness in everything, right? Right. I think that's where I started with my question. Like, I see myself as a good person. I have never done anything particularly horrible. But I think that I could. And I think that of everyone. Not that I see people as good or bad, but I, I just think back to who we are we're mammals we're animals mm-hmm. and we have the ability to tap into something like that and i see it the way you see it i think that everyone deserves to be happy or not even happy but deserves to be treated like a human and reach their fullest potential and not mm-hmm. given up on just like you know you didn't give up on that patient who didn't want to come to your group for a long time yeah I mean, who knows? Maybe that maybe that happened once in his life. So don't give up. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Moral of the story. You may have answered this already, but has working with this population shifted your perspective of people in general? Yes, it has. To be honest, I you know in my young adulthood, I might have thought that a person in jail should be in isolation, and it was as simple as that. But since I've worked with this population, I've gained a a much different understanding of that. And even if I hadn't been with this population, but just working with anybody with a mental illness, I've come to appreciate that that's, that's just not humane. It's no one could live in a, in a box their whole life, you know? So yeah, it's dramatically changed my perspective. I have a much fuller understanding of the human experience. You know, and again, the call to action here is to encourage our society to learn about mental illness and um, what the signs and symptoms are when someone's struggling and what are the resources and seek help. Don't be afraid to support that individual. They they might need you. Um, Don't be afraid to look for resources and get them to a hospital if they need that. There's nothing wrong with getting help. Right. When you say resources, you mean bringing them to a hospital, worst case scenario, or suggesting yeah, therapist, or giving them a hotline number, any kind right. of options. There, there might be certain families or individuals that are holding on to this belief that you just got to deal with it within the family, and it's a secret if you know something's going on. But you know, it's not their fault if they're mentally ill, and it's okay to to ask for help and. Whether that's you know seeing an individual therapist or taking them straight to the hospital, which is not a punishment, by the way. 
it's seen a lot that way. Parents will bring their kids like, you're going to the hospital because you're being bad, right? Instead of the message could be, you're going to the hospital because you really need support right now and I can't keep you safe at home. Right. I mean, an example we oftentimes use is cancer. If you found out a family member had been diagnosed with cancer, you'd probably take them in for treatment and support them and embrace them, right? It's That's not always the same with mental illness. And, you know, we've got to start examining that or doing doing more work. I know that there are steps that people are taking, but we've got a lot of work to do. Yeah. Well, I, I think it, it's a misconception that individuals with mental illness have control over their mental illness. And that could be true to some extent, but um, they're giving them so much empowerment in a way that they, I know that this comes up a lot where I work, but it's, it's like this misconception that they can stop at any time or they're doing this particular thing on purpose and they're, they're portraying it like they're, this mental illness isn't an illness. It's a manipulation of their behavior, some sort. Right. So the more that we can learn as a society and not be fearful of it, but use that as an opportunity to embrace and support and care for these individuals, maybe the less likely they are to be accused of a crime. Maybe they won't end up on a forensic inpatient unit. If we could address that and I didn't have to work on a forensic unit because we don't have anyone coming in, that would be a a great scenario, right? Imagine that kind of world. Well, so hopefully whoever's listening can share with other people who can learn a little bit more too. I like your call to action. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Was there any other information you wanted to share? I know you do some private practice. Sure. If anyone wants to visit my website, I'm at nycmovementtherapy.com. I have a couple of authentic movement groups that I run, one that's a monthly group and one that's weekly, and I have space open in both groups. In New York City. check out my website if you're interested. In New York City. Yes. (laughs) Awesome. Thanks again for having me, Reed. Yeah, thank you so much. Ms. Karane contributed to this interview in her personal capacity. The views and opinions expressed are her own and do not necessarily reflect the perspective of Bellevue Health and Hospitals. Thank you, Kendra, and thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you next time on Mind Your Body.